We're continuing our look at the book of Daniel, and we've got two more sessions that I really want to cover uh, in this uh, series, uh, in this section of this series on what lies ahead. Uh, last week, we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's statue and how it predicted the different uh, empires that would dominate the world, including the Roman Empire from the first century, and then the revived Roman Empire. And this week, we're going to look at uh, Daniel's vision from chapter 7, and it correlates perfectly with Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Uh, now, once again, I know we've got a lot of people that tune in either on the podcast or uh, on our videos, so if you're watching this on video, I want to remind you that uh, you can get pick up the book, What Lies Ahead, which is a comprehensive overview, overview of the end times. Uh, on the Not By Works website, which you see there on the screen. Uh, those of you that are here, we still have a few back at the back on the table there. Um, but there are some things that are going to be in the book that we may or may not get to in the course of this series. And then there are some things that we're covering in more detail through this video series that, that we then we do in the book. So it's just a good companion uh, model. But uh, we've talked about Daniel's explosive prof prophecies and how Daniel is such a remarkable book because of its accuracy. And in fact, it makes those who deny the authority of Scripture really upset because of how accurate it is. And so many have rejected it and said that it isn't inspired, it's not part of the Bible, it was a, a fake, and so forth. But of course, Jesus himself quoted from Daniel by name, gives him credit, and then quotes uh, some of the passages, particularly the one we're going to look at uh, next time. By the way, we are going to be having another q and I want to get through Daniel first, so this week and then next week and then the following week we'll pause and we'll just have a Q&A. So be thinking about your questions, maybe jot them down somewhere and then be ready for that. But of course, as always, if you have a question anytime during the course of one of these uh, messages, feel free to throw up your hand and stop. This is a Bible study uh, time and an interactive time. I know sometimes I get to going fast, and may, you may think, well, he's got a lot of material that we don't want to interrupt, but feel free to interrupt. We want this to be mutually <coughs> beneficial, and if you have a question, chances are somebody else might be wondering the same thing. So feel free to ask questions, but we will dedicate the entire uh, session to this uh, two weeks from now uh, with a Q&A. Uh, so again, the book of Daniel concerns itself, uh, at least the prophetic portions, with the end times, which is everything that starts with the rapture that you see on the far left side of the screen there and goes through to the inauguration of the kingdom and ultimately the recreation of the heavens and the earth and the eternal kingdom. The uh, middle section that you see on the screen there, and obviously this is not drawn to scale, but that deals with that seven-year period that the Bible calls the day of the Lord's wrath. And next week, we're going to get into the pivotal prophecy in Daniel um, really the key to understanding everything else, which is that 70th week, what's called the 70th week. So it's been hard for me to hold off diving into that because it is so important and so fascinating, but I wanted to put everything in context and make sure we dealt particularly with chapters 2 and chapter 7 uh, in detail. Uh, so we've said previously when we introduced Daniel that the time frame here is about uh, six centuries or so before the time of Christ. And that Daniel's uh, book deals in the first half with the times of the Gentiles, God's program for the world, and that's what we're dealing with today again, as we did with chapter 2. 
And then we're going to get specifically into God's program for Israel. Uh, Daniel uh, realizes at this point in chapter, when you get to chapter 9 that Jeremiah's famous prophecy that Israel would be held captive for 70 years was coming to an end. Those 70 years were about over. And he wonders what's going to happen next. And God reveals the next phase of God's plan for Israel. And that is what we call the 70 weeks prophecy or what I call the 490 year prophecy. So that's uh, something to look forward to next week. I've uh, talked about the overview of the book of Daniel, sort of a high level overview, what, what each chapter deals with, um, and some key components and key sections. Don't forget the theme of the entire book is the most high rules in the kingdom of men. We get that from chapter 4, verse 17. And what I hope you saw last week was that by you know, giving, revealing to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream the different empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, uh, Greece, Rome, uh, indeed we see that God is in charge of all this because those things came true just like God predicted they would. And it's a great reminder for us even now, more than 2,000 years later, that in good times and bad, God is still on the throne. God is still in charge. God is working out his plan. Now, sadly, as you've heard me say many times, a lot of the church today, the church at large, uh, has abandoned any interest in and study of Bible prophecy. I call it the 84 percenters, the 84 percent club, because 16 percent of the Bible is made up of end times prophecy that has not been fulfilled yet. So if you shun that, if you ignore that or have no appetite or interest in that, you're really only studying 84 percent of the Bible. And so uh, in this day and age, uh, it, it, when you focus all of your attention on the here and the now and, and daily living and forget the big picture and forget that God is working out his plan, uh, you can become very myopic and, and sort of miss out on the great treasures of Scripture that remind us things like God is a covenant-keeping God. God has not abdicated the throne. Even in difficult times, God still is working out His plan. He is sovereign. So much practical value and application from studying prophecy. Not to mention the fact that, as we've said before, just knowing the end of the story, to me, seems obvious. Why someone would want to read the Bible and not know how it ends, and not know what God's plan of the ages uh, is. God's plan has a beginning and an end. Okay, God, God created the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days, some 6,000 years ago. And He created man in His own image with free will. We fell when we sinned. We, we, uh, that image became corrupted because of our own free choice when we rebelled against God. And then God's plan involves redemption, and recreation, restoring everything into a right, right relationship with Him. And it has a definite ending point. So the Bible tells a story that comes full circle back to a, a pre-fall Edenic state, like we saw in creation. And, uh, and, and, then, and then time shall be no more, and there's no, in the, in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom someday, we know there's no night, there's no sea, uh, these, these types of things, because, uh, you know, time shall be no more. Uh, so, but Daniel is a big part of that because it just reminds us that the Most High, our God, rules uh, in the kingdom of men. So, 
the question before us, and this of course is part of a larger series that we're doing on what lies ahead, and as we talked about several weeks ago, uh, a lot of people have given up hope, and Peter predicts that that would be the case in 2 Peter 3, that in the latter days people will mock you know, his coming and say, where is, this, where is this promised coming? He said he was coming, he's not here, you know. And uh, so the question really that they're asking is, we don't know if we can trust God anymore. And Daniel's asking the same question. So even though 2,000 years have lapsed between Daniel and us, we're both asking the same question. We are still looking for what the Apostle Paul calls the blessed hope, the soon coming, glorious reappearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can God be trusted? And Daniel's prophecy answers that question with a resounding uh, yes, he can be. So to review, uh, we looked last week at chapter 2, and that was Nebuchadnezzar's statue, which Daniel both revealed the dream and the interpretation uh, through the Lord's revelation to him. And so the statue indicated that Nebuchadnezzar's empire, the Babylonian empire, would soon fall, and it did. And it would be replaced by the Persians who came in, and, uh, and they were the dominant power of the day. And then uh, the Grecian Empire came in and took, took over, and each of these empires sort of subsumed the one before it and took over, and, and then many of the people and, and, and ways and practices and territories were subsumed into the new one. And then, of course, by the time of Christ, we were dealing with the Roman Empire. Uh, and then Daniel 2 in the statue reminds us that the, that fourth empire, the Roman Empire, will be revived someday, as we talked about last week. And the feet there are a mixture of iron and clay. Uh, and just as the Roman uh, Empire originally was, had a western half and an e eastern half, the revived Roman Empire will follow the same pattern. We cannot say with any degree of certainty what nations will make up that ten-nation uh, confederacy, the revived Roman Empire, because we don't know when it's going to happen. And nations come and go. Nation, uh, the names of nations come and go and so forth. Uh, so, uh, but we do know that the that Roman Empire is going to have a resurgence and a revival, but it's going to be very short-lived. Uh, the Antichrist will be the head of it, but Christ, that, that stone made without hands, is going to come and destroy that future uh, revived Roman Empire and, and it, in its place establish an entirely new, eternal, permanent kingdom. And uh, unlike the previous kingdoms in Daniel's interpretation of the statue, this final kingdom, Christ's kingdom, uh, will not be uh, you know, incorporating other parts of the previous kingdoms. It will obliterate them all and start afresh. Uh, in the millennium and continuing on throughout eternity. Now we're going to get now to Daniel 7 and I, we're going to go through it verse by verse like we did Jan Daniel 2 last week, but I want to at least tell you where we're headed so you can kind of get a sense of the parallel between chapter 7 and chapter 2 and then we'll come back to each one of these. So first of all, uh, Daniel reveals or the Lord reveals to Daniel in this vision the Babylonian Empire through the beast that looks like a lion. And then he goes on to reveal, just like he did in chapter 2, the Medo-Persian Empire, which is revealed through a vision that seems to resemble a bear. And then the leopard represents the empire of Greece. And then finally, 
the Roman Empire, which is a beast like no other. Okay, so those are the four empires that are coming, and if you put them side by side, they, as I said, parallel chapter 2 uh, perfectly. So let's pick it up then with verse 1 of chapter 7 and see what uh, Daniel's dream is all about. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, quote, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. <coughs> and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. So this is Daniel's vision of four great beasts. The first, he says, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So this is, of course, representative of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian uh, empire. Uh, years and years ago, when I was just starting out in ministry, I had a, a student that was in my youth ministry that took this vision in chapter 7. He was an artist and a pretty good one. And he created an artist rendering uh, of each one of these beasts. And it was really fascinating. And you, there's no shortage of these. A lot of people have done, done this, uh, this work. I don't have it anywhere. I wish I did. I'd love to show it to you. But it was really bizarre. And it sort of illustrated uh, what might have been in Daniel's mind. But the best we can do is focus on the text and its term lion. And so we'll use a lion to represent the Babylonian Empire. And then he goes on and says, And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. So this is very apocalyptic in its language. Um, you know, if we do our Bible study methods uh, class someday, which I do hope to get to maybe after this uh, End Times Prophecy series, you'll learn that there's different genres of Scripture. Apocalyptic literature is something that where you have weird things going on, like in this case, ribs talking, you know, to the beast. Um, and we don't want to make the mistake of trying to identify every specific detail in it. The point is, this was a second kingdom, and it represents the Medo-Persian uh, Empire. And then Daniel says, after this I looked, and there was another kingdom, or another beast, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And that, of course, is the empire of Greece. And then you come to the famous Roman Empire. And he didn't really compare it to any beast on earth uh, or natural animal. It was unique. All he could do was describe it in dreadful, terrifying and, uh, you know, terms. It was, it was extremely uh, strong. He said exceedingly uh, strong. So he says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. Where have we heard about iron before? 
chapter 2, the Roman Empire. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were for it, and it had ten horns. Ten horns. Now this uh, actually does serve as a pretty good historical example of the Roman Empire, which was ruthless in its destruction of civilizations and peoples, uh, killing captives by the thousands, selling them into slavery by the hundreds of thousands. And the ten horns here represent the ten rulers of the future revived Roman Empire, as we shall see in verse uh, 24. So once again, there are these beasts. And let's kind of see what else Daniel has uh, to say here, particularly about this last one, the Roman Empire. He says, as I was considering the horns, remember the ten horns, there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, if you've been following uh, my series on Spirit of the Antichrist that we did last year, you know, we looked at this verse as a characteristic of the future Antichrist when we talked about the spirit of pride because the Antichrist is going to be marked by unprecedented pride. And this 11th horn that he sees rising up among the 10 displaces three of the horns. It has the human eyes, indicating probably intelligence, and this is quite clearly the Antichrist. So one of the names that we talked about that the Bible uses to describe the Antichrist is the little horn, the little horn. And uh, we've seen several other passages that refer to him in similar characteristics. So then Daniel says, I watched till, the throne, till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Notice the figures of speech here, using like or as. He's just describing this. It doesn't mean the Ancient of Days had hair. Uh, but his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning uh, fire. So Daniel is now shifting his focus to heaven, to the courts in heaven, and he sees thrones that are being set up. And the actually the Hebrew text uh, in the original language indicates kind of a shift in focus because if you recall when we started out, we talked about how some of Daniel is written in Aramaic and some is Hebrew, and in verse 9 here it shifts. So even in our English translations, you see that it's sort of set off in poetic form. It's, it looks different in our English Bibles. And that's a clue that he's, his focus has shifted. Whereas these beasts were all on the earth, and the ten horns representing the ten nations of the future revived Roman Empire were on earth, uh, and the eleventh horn was on earth, the Antichrist. Now he's looking at the Ancient of Days. So who's the Ancient of Days referred to? God the Father, exactly. God the Father. Uh, so God takes his seat on the throne. Verse 10, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered uh, to him. Talking about angels there. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. 
So God is going to render judgment on these rulers. And again, this is right after the, the revived Roman Empire here, based on their records of deeds. And he says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. And this, if you notice in your English Bibles, it returns to sort of a prose outline rather than an inset uh, poetic form. So his focus is shifting once again back to earth. The sound of, he was speaking sound of pompous words, and I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the boastful word seems to, to really be something that keeps getting Daniel's attention. And that gives us a clue at how the Antichrist is going to be operating in that final seven-year period. Again, we've talked a lot about that. And we talked about how John says the spirit of Antichrist is already at work, which is the whole premise for that series, Spirit of the Antichrist. If you've not seen that, I encourage you to go back and watch that. Just go to notbyworks.org and click on videos, and then right there you'll see Spirit of the Antichrist, 18 different sessions. Uh, that say, hey, this is what the Antichrist is going to be like when he takes the throne in the seven-year seven tribulation. But John tells us that spirit is already at work, so we ought to be seeing characteristics like that getting worse and worse and worse because Paul tells us that deception is going to get worse and worse in 2 Timothy 3.13. So God passes judgment on the fourth beast, the revived Roman Empire, and destroys it along with the horns. And this is similar to the way in chapter 2, that stone cut without hands destroyed the feet, you know, the, which represented the revived Roman Empire. It's sudden, it's violent, it's uh, unexpected. So one thing we need to understand about the seven-year tribulation is that even though from our perspective, because we've got God's plan, we've got it clearly spilled out, spelled out, and we can, you know, we can chart it out like I've done, and many have done, uh, in the moment, in that day, for those alive during that final seven-year tribulation, it is going to be something that is unexpected. Now, it shouldn't be, and, but we know it is going to be because Jesus spent so much time in the Olivet Discourse, that Wednesday night teaching that he gave right before he was betrayed and arrested the next day, uh, reminding the future leaders of Israel to not be deceived, to watch out, to be ready. He's coming like a thief in the night. You know, all of those uh, things. And so, uh, just like the first coming of Christ was missed by the nation of Israel, uh, not everybody, there was a remnant, as Paul said, and he includes himself in that remnant, but by and large, the nation and its leadership missed the Messiah. They rejected him. The same thing is going to happen the next time with a few people. And so not everybody's going to receive the gospel of the kingdom. Many will receive the mark of the beast during that seven-year period. And you think, well, won't it be obvious? Well, yeah, but the first advent was obvious too. I mean, it, the prophecies were clear, and it happened just like the prophets said it would. Uh, the virgin conceived and gave a child and so forth. And the same thing will be true of the second a time. So they'll be humming along. The Antichrist will have taken the throne. We'll have a one-world government, a one-world system. Uh, he's going to be instituting strict controls over commerce and religion and everything. Uh, and yet, in the midst of it, 
boom, like that stone coming out in the vision in chapter 2. And like here with the Ancient of Days, uh, God is going to destroy that fourth kingdom, and that will result in a totally new condition on earth. What will that condition be? Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, will come back as promised, the long-awaited fulfillment of God's kingdom promise. He'll take the throne, he'll rule with a rod of iron, and he will rule for the first thousand years over the earth as we know it, meaning it'll be the same earth, just like we are walking on today. But it will be a, a one-world system too, but ruled with justice and righteousness and peace, and the governments will be upon his shoulder, Isaiah tells us. And during that thousand years, uh, Satan himself will be bound up in prison, the book of Revelation tells us, uh, not completely powerless, not destroyed yet, not sent to the lake of fire where he will be tormented forever and ever and ever, but nevertheless held largely in check. And yet, even during that thousand year time, many people who are born during that time, and like all people born, they're born in trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1, they need to be saved. Many will reject the gospel still. A lot of people say, well, what's the point of that thousand-year millennial reign? Why not, why not just go from the return of Christ to casting all of the corrupted creation and unsaved, believer, unsaved people into the lake of fire and create the new heavens and new earth? Well, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us why, but I think we can infer that it's to remind us that even under the most idyllic conditions, that the heart of man is desperately wicked. And that nobody will be able to have an excuse and say, well, you know, you don't know how bad my life was. Or I, my parents never took me to church. Or I never heard about Jesus. Or so on and so forth. Because even for a thousand years, which by the way is a long time, if the rapture were to happen today, that's half the length of time the whole church age has been. So that's a long time. Uh, for that thousand year period of time people won't have accidental death there'll be no injustices the guilty will not get off scot-free the innocent will never be wrongly accused or convicted uh, people will not drown or die of you know unexpected tragedies or accidents and yet the heart of man is desperately wicked and for some reason people will reject the gospel I think those 10 reasons that I give in top 10 reasons, some people go to hell, uh, will be universal even during that time. There are certain things that somehow keep people from receiving the free gift of eternal life, just as they, there are uh, today. So, But at the end of that seven years, uh, so that fourth empire, the revived part of it, is going to be short-lived. You know. Um, now, the systems may all be in place, you know, that's what we appear to see happening today, you know, with the Great Reset and all of these uh, draconian measures being put in place and the one last bastion of freedom, the United States of America, being completely turned on its head in terms of our constitutional freedoms and biblical freedoms and Christian freedoms. Uh, the stage is clearly being set for a satanic one-world system. And I believe it, that, and, and you, those of you that have... Uh, that know me and have listened to my teaching know uh, this is how I feel, that, this, that it's not about Democrat or Republican or you know, Pelosi or Biden or this or that. They're, they're bad, don't get me wrong. Neither is it about Islam or that. That's bad, I get it. They have problems, but they're all pawns in a larger game that Satan is using, which is called the Luciferian agenda. Satan, remember, was Lucifer, 
And uh, the, he is co-conspiring with demons and human beings to usher in a one-world system and take over the world. Uh, you believe Satan's taking over the world? Raise your hand. He, he wants to do that. Now, he's going to fail, ultimately, because Christ, this is, this is God's creation. But when Satan couldn't get heaven, he wanted to get earth. So he's been trying ever since he got kicked out to make this his domain. That's the reason John tells us the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Uh, Job tells us he comes to and fro from the whole earth. He's the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. This is, this is what Satan's trying to do. So, uh, so I think we see the stage being set today, but we don't have the mind of God. We're not date setters. We're not sensationalists, right? We're not trying to say, oh, this happened, so the rapture's going to happen on this date in September or with whatever. We don't, we don't do that. The Bible tells us the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any moment. But what we can do and what we should do and what Jesus tells us to do is to discern the signs of the times. And so as we look around and we see a one world government being sort of set up right before our very eyes, we may find that we're living in an actual one world government. A lot of people think we're de facto in a one world government already, and I tend to agree, but we could be in an actual one world government even before the rapture and before the Antichrist takes charge of it. And that won't be the revived Roman Empire. The revived Roman Empire comes into being when, Satan, when the church is rescued before the great day of the Lord's wrath and Satan indwells the Antichrist and he sets himself up as the one world leader. That's the beginning of this, you know, the little horn of Daniel, the beginning of this final uh, one world system under Satan's control. So, I always like to point out that some people think that the belief in the rapture is a belief that says we're going to be rescued before it gets bad. That is not what the rapture teaches. I don't know anybody that believes in the rapture that at least knows their Bible that says that. No one has ever said that. Some of the great stalwarts of the faith who have taught and spoken and written about the rapture don't say that at all. Uh, it's really bad already for a lot of Christians, and it may get really bad for us. God never promised to rescue us before it gets really bad. In fact, Jesus promised just the opposite. In this world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So the rapture is not some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card that rescues us before we have to suffer. Not at all. All the rapture is, is something that rescues us before the great day of the Lord's wrath. Before this final Roman Empire takes place and the Antichrist takes control of it. And when we're rescued, we're up in heaven experiencing the beam of judgment and the marriage of the Lamb. And then after that seven year period, we will come back with Christ riding on white horses to establish the kingdom where we will rule and reign with him. Uh, as he promised, and we will help govern the, the, the future uh, kingdom. So does that make sense? So uh, this sudden destruction by the Ancient of Days, uh, God takes place and puts an end and brings in this totally new condition on the earth that we call the Kingdom Age, that the Bible calls that. So verse 13, this is the most frequently quoted verse from Daniel in the New Testament, Daniel 7, 13. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Now, who's that? Jesus. Jesus. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. 
one like the Son of Man, is Jesus. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. He uses this phrase 31 times in Matthew alone to refer to himself. And that's because Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, so Matthew records selected events from the life and ministry of Christ that would resonate with a Jewish audience. Well, the Jews knew about Daniel. He's one of the most famous prophets. And of course, when Jesus you know, is speaking, he's going to use Son of Man a lot, and Matthew's going to point that out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. Uh, so he says, Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So get the picture. This is Daniel once again shifting the scene back to heaven. He sees something taking place there. Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Remember, Jesus didn't become the Son in Bethlehem. He just became incarnate. He put on human flesh, but he's always been the Son. God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, these angelic attendants were ushered all, all around that he talked about a moment ago. And then God gives the Son the authority to rule on the earth. So let's look at a couple of passages here. I don't have them on the screen. But look, first of all, at Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. <clears throat> this is Jesus' own words describing his return when the disciples had asked him after he had cursed the fig tree and, and had uh, you know, talked about the temple is going to be destroyed and not one stone will be left upon the other. The disciples got a little antsy and said, well, when's the kingdom coming? I mean, how can you rule in the kingdom if there's no temple? Which again indicates that the kingdom teaching is always literal it's not figurative. Why would the disciples be concerned about the temple being destroyed if the kingdom was spiritual and figurative reigning in our hearts? Because in their mind, they had no concept of a kingdom without a temple and a throne and a king and a ge geographic boundary. But anyway, they said, well, so when are you coming? What will be the sign of your coming? And the entire rest of chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew and Mark 13 records this and Luke 21 is Jesus' answer to that question. So he gives all the signs all the way up through verse 28. And then he says, in verse, let's start in verse 29, Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So when is the second coming? After the tribulation. When is the rapture? Before the tribulation, the, the day of the Lord's wrath. Uh, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So let's pause there for a second. What did Daniel tell us in Daniel 7.13? One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus makes several allusions here. He's already quoted Daniel by name up in, in verse 15 of, of Matthew 24. But there's several parallels here to Daniel's teaching about the return of Christ. Back to Matthew 24, verse 31. He will send the angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, that's Israel, from one end of heaven to the other. That's the direct fulfillment 
of several Old Testament prophecies like Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, Isaiah 27, 13, where the Israel is promised that in the end times, in the, in the inauguration of the kingdom, they will be regathered into the land in belief. And it's going to be a supernatural event, number one. So that means that what has been happening since May 15, 1948 is not the fulfillment of this. And number two, it will be in belief because Jesus had already said just prior to this sermon, uh, the thing that prompted the sermon, in fact, he'd already said to the Jewish leaders, you will not see me again until you cry, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's the fulfillment of Joel 2, where Joel's prophecy of Christ's second coming says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered into the kingdom. By the way, that passage is not about eternal individual salvation, eternal life. Nobody gets saved by calling on the name of the Lord. In fact, a lot of unbelievers call on the name of the Lord in the last hours, and they're not saved. You don't get saved by calling the name Jesus. You get saved by believing in the name Jesus. Joel's passage, which Paul quotes in Romans 10, has nothing to do with individual justification. It's about national deliverance. Joel says to Israel, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered into the kingdom. Jesus says, you're not going to see me until you call on my name and cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is the fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm 118. And then Paul sort of puts it all together for us doctrinally and theologically in Romans 9, 10, and 11 when he says, my heart's desire and prayer for the nation of Israel is that they be delivered into her kingdom, but they can't be delivered into the kingdom unless they first individually believe the gospel. Right? How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe on him in whom they have not heard? Uh, he goes on to quote Isaiah, How beautiful are the feet of him who preaches the gospel. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So calling on the name of the Lord is referring to national <coughs> deliverance. And so we see that, that happening here at the second coming. And indeed, Israel today, though we love Israel, and we know God's, Israel is the apple of God's eye, and we know that God has a plan for future Israel, and we know that probably 1948 was a setting of the stage like so many other things. It is not accurate to get all excited about Israel and think that they can do no wrong. I mean, the leaders of Israel are pagan. I mean, some of them may be believers, but by and large, they're pagan. And the ones wanting to rebuild the temple today, you know who they're rebuilding that temple for? The ones that are working on it, the temple project today? They're building it for the Antichrist. That's his temple. They're not building the Ezekiel Millennial Temple. They're, the next temple that's going to be built is for the Antichrist, and it's going to be destroyed. So they're, they're not there in belief. Even though many Jews are believers, uh, and many have believed the gospel, and they're called Messianic Jews, but nationally speaking, Israel is not in the land in belief today. And so back to Daniel chapter 7, he says, uh, One like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. They, he comes before the Lord. So we're back in heaven. We get the scene and listen to what he says. Now to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one which shall never be destroyed. So at this point, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, becomes the prominent person and figure 
in Daniel's vision. He receives the dominion and glory, just like uh, we read in Matthew 24, coming in power and great glory, Matthew 24, 31. Um, and where does he get this power and great glory? From the ancient of days, God the Father. Uh, God's intention in giving Jesus this authority is that all peoples, all nations, and all languages would serve him. It would be a global rule over everyone. And his kingdom would last forever in contrast to those other kingdoms of gold, silver, bronze, and iron that Nebuchadnezzar saw, or you know, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the crazy beast that Daniel saw, succeeding kingdoms. Uh, there, there would be no future kingdoms. There would be nothing after Christ's kingdom. Yeah. How does the millennial kingdom fit into the everlasting kingdom? Yeah, so it's just the first thousand years. So the question is, how does the millennial phase of the kingdom, now you called it the millennial kingdom, which is fine because a lot of people call it that. In fact, the best book ever written on it was by John Walvoord and it's called Millennial Kingdom. But I've always thought that's a little bit of a misnomer and an unfortunate title because it tends to imply that the kingdom is a thousand years. But what did we just read? The kingdom is eternal, everlasting, shall never end. And we see that every time the kingdom is mentioned. In, in Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel told Mary that her Christ child that she was carrying would take the throne of his father David and rule forever. So the as you see on the chart, I indicate the whole kingdom is called the messianic kingdom. Some people call it the eternal kingdom or the mediatorial kingdom. Uh, that's what uh, Alva McLean called it. Uh, uh, and it, it's got a ruler. The first thousand years of it is on the old heavens and the old earth, as we now know them. Uh, and the ruler is Jesus Christ. After the old heavens and old earth are destroyed and the new heavens and new earth are created, and again, that's not a renovation, that's a complete recreation, then the one mediating it is the eternal Godhead, according to Revelation. All right, so that's that's kind of the answer. Does that make sense? So it's okay. I mean, I don't. We can't quibble over calling it the millennial kingdom, but just understand that the kingdom does not end at the thousand years. It goes on in perpetuity. It's just things are different. There's no sin. There's no nighttime. There's no sea. There are rivers, but no sea, and it's an eternal uh, kingdom. Any other questions before we wrap up here? We just got a couple more verses. I'll finish up with good question so to him was given dominion and so on and then we read in verses 15 and 16 I Daniel was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me I came near to one of those who stood by and asked them the truth of all this so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things the those great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Who are the saints of the Most High? Us. Us, exactly. You and I, right? So it's, it's, it's part of our plan. Remember, going all the way back to Genesis, God gave mankind, made in His image, dominion over the earth, over all the beasts of the earth, right? But we've abdicated that dominion, Right? Now, certain trees have more rights than human beings and unborn children. Now, certain animals have more rights than human beings made in the image of God. You know, 
We've and that's Satan's by design. Satan is trying to destroy the image of God in man. And that's what he's been doing ever since the beginning. You go, you know, that's why we started this series with Genesis to understand how God at the very beginning predicted in Genesis 3.15 that someday, someday, the seed of the woman, which is an oxymoron because the seed comes from the man, not the woman. That's why in Genesis 3.15 the seed is capitalized because it's referring to the virgin birth of Christ. He will destroy Satan once and for all. But a lot has to happen and has happened uh, between now and then. But, uh, you know, go back to Genesis and God used language to create man when he spoke the world into existence. He created male and female, part of the image of God and man. That's being destroyed, the gender surrender movement. Uh, he created uh, uh, just the whole family aspect. Life in general, you know, is, is valuable to God, and yet we're destroying life. So, but someday it's going to come full circle and we will hold our right position serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then uh, those, uh, or the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. So we're out of time for, for this week, but I do want to make sure next week is kind of the, the main attraction, if you will. This is all, these have all just been the, the warm-up acts, you know, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Daniel 9 really puts it all together, and, and, and you're going to see that Daniel's 490-year plan, which he tells us exactly when it starts, and we know historically on a calendar what that day was, and he tells us exactly how long it'll be till the Messiah comes at his first advent, and we're going to find out that it's fulfilled exactly to the day, exactly to the day. All right, well, we'll stop here, and then we'll pick up uh, next week.